Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Praise God. Thank you, guys. Hey, welcome. We're glad you are all here. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors around here, and I get the privilege and honor of getting to preach God's uh, word today. If you're new with us or you're a guest or you haven't been around long, that's what we do here in this ministry is week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we just get to preach God's word from this stage. We get to make much of him and sing, but also, man, we, uh, we really, um, we know that it's not what I have to say. It's not um, our ability to give a great pep talk or a speech up here, but really it's what does God's word say and then how does it apply to us? So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you got your Bible, start flipping there. Uh, we've been walking through 1 Samuel this whole semester, uh, and I'll get to do a little bit of review, um, but, uh, but be flipping there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got slides that'll pop up on the screen that'll be helpful, but also if you made it to college without a Bible or you lost it or whatever, we've got some around the room and on your way out, or even right now, you could hop up and you can grab one of those, and that is yours. You can keep it. Um, that's our gift to you. Um, <clears throat> as you're flipping there, I, I want to um, just kind of unpack something that I think is going to be a theme throughout uh, I had kind of a unique experience growing up and a unique perspective um, into orphanages. So my parents are missionaries, and so as missionaries, we lived in the States, we lived in da- the Dallas area, but they would go overseas, they worked with a missions organization that would go overseas, specifically to Russia, and work in orphanages all in the southern part of the country of Russia. And, and they did that while I was growing up. Uh, first time I went with them was, I think I was like an eighth grader, um, and I went with them, and their whole role was to kind of partner with churches and go in and really be a blessing to orphanages and help get humanitarian aid and support them, especially in regions that were really impoverished and were in really bad shape. And so that's what they did, but then also not just humanitarian aid and kind of helping uh, in physical ways, but also spiritually you know, introducing the gospel and, and, and sharing Christ with these kids and, and workers of the orphanage, all that kind of stuff. So first time I went with them, I remember, um, man, it was a heartbreaking thing, uh, as you could probably imagine, just all the stereotypes that you might have uh, for orphan orphanages, especially in that region. It's not fair across the board, um, but in that region that they were working in, um, I mean, they, these there were some places that were just awful places, just really, really sad, and, and a lot of horrible stuff going on, and just really, um, just dirty and filled with disease and filled with all kinds of awful stuff um, that I won't get into. And I remember when we would show up there, you know, we'd pull in in a bus. And what we would do is we'd be in the country for maybe a couple of weeks and we would go and spend one day at each orphanage because there's this whole region, region outside of Veronish, Russia, full of orphans. And that's where they would send them. Basically, the whole country would, would ship a lot of their orphans to that area. And we would only stay at an orphanage for a day. And it was heartbreaking because you'd go and you'd play games and you'd give them prizes and toys and love them and and try to do neat things for them and try to meet some needs and meet with the staff. And man, these kids had never, had never looked nicer. 
right? I mean, they didn't have very many shirts, but whatever the best shirt they had, it was as clean as they could get it, and it, they, it was as, as tight as it was. Their hair had never looked better. Uh, they were never on their, uh, they'd never been in a better uh, behavior and attitude and friendly and patient, and man, it was heartbreaking because it was just intuitive. From a two or a three-year-old all the way to 16, 17-year-olds, you could just tell there was this, there was this yearning that every one of them, as we got off the bus and we walked into their living conditions of where they lived their life, there was just this cry from within saying, take me back with you, right? Every one of them, am I good enough? Am I clean enough? Am I polite enough? Is this person gonna show up today in this orphanage and is, are they gonna see me or are they gonna say, now that person is, is a, a, a pretty young girl that I'm gonna be able to raise as my daughter. That boy is really polite and I want him as my son. Am I good enough? And it was this heartbreaking thing every single time and we weren't even there with an adoption agency. We're just there to minister to these orphans who aren't gonna get adopted, most of them. And, and it was this heartbreaking thing where you get back in the bus and you just leave a, a, a crowd of kids who just say, was, was I not good enough to be selected? And it is something that, um, that all of us have. It's something that I believe God has wired in every single one of us. Our social situations, our family dynamic, all of that looks really different. And it manifests itself in a bunch of different ways that we'll talk about. But at the core of all of us, I believe we are designed to be connected and adopted to something greater than us. I believe we have a heavenly father that we're wired to connect with. And I believe all of our life in certain areas is, am I worthy to be yours? Am I good enough? And, and whether we know it, whether consciously we're aware of it or it's a subconscious, we are trying to answer that question with our lives. What we're going to see today in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is we're going to see behind the curtain where we see God say, this is who I'm picking. Out of, out of the room, I'm picking that guy. And we're going to get to see even a part of the character and motivation of God of why he would choose someone, why, what would make them worthy. And we're going to see also why he wouldn't do that. And so um, jump with me into 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to really just be studying the, the first 13, uh, the first, first half of this chapter probably. And then we'll, um, we'll, we'll jump into, okay, how does this uh, apply to us? And so look at verse 1 to start with. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Let me stop and give us some context so we understand what's happening here. I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you a 120-second um, summary of the last 15 chapters of 1 Samuel if you've missed any of them. Israel is the people of God, right? Israel is the people of God, the Hebrew people that God said, I'm gonna reveal my character through these people, how I operate. And so he had selected this group of people. They didn't have a king because they were God's people. Every other nation had kings. The Israelites didn't because they were different. They were the ones who didn't have the king. They didn't look like everyone else. They had the God, the one true God, Yahweh. That's how God designed it. They're going through life. They're doing their thing, all kinds of ups and downs. And then we hit this book. And what happens is they're like, man, we're tired of not having a king. So at the beginning of 1 Samuel, they had prophets, and that was what they had, right? They had prophets that were intermediaries. So they go to Samuel, who's a prophet, and they say, dude, 
you're fine and all, and we still like God, and we still want to be the God nation, but we really want a king. Everybody else has a king. We really want one also. We get it, God, and he's our king, and yet we get that, but we really want a tangible king that we can really see, that can represent us, that can lead us into battle, all that fun, cute stuff. And, and Samuel's like, what the crap? And, and instead, what God does is he says, okay, give them what they want. Give them what they want. And God anoints for them a guy named Saul to be the first king. We see that so far in this book. And Saul is the first king of Israel. And, and he's the guy that they say, okay, this, and he looks the part, man. He's tall and strong and he's a warrior and he's handsome and he does all the, and he just looks like that guy is definitely the king. And pretty quickly, what we've seen so far this semester in this book, in the first 15 chapters, is he blows it. He blows it. He's, he doesn't follow the Lord. What Nathan talked about this last week. He, he halfway obeys, right? And one of the things that Nathan talked about is partial obedience is actually still disobedience. And so he's this king that's like, well, I'm going to do some God things, but I'm also going to do some things my way too. And in doing that, he loses God's blessing. Here we are in chapter 16. Saul is no longer blessed by God, no longer has God's favor of saying, this is going to be my king for my people. And so here we are, and Samuel is still pouting about it. He's upset. He's disappointed. He's grieving. Man, why couldn't Saul worked out? And God says, get over it. I got a new king that I'm going to anoint. Go to this guy, Jesse's house. He lives in Bethlehem. He's got a ton of sons. I'm going to point him out, and it's going to be one of them. Pick up now in verse 2. And Samuel, this prophet, said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for him, for you will anoint me for him who I declare. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay, so here's what's happening, right? Samuel shows up. He, first he says, hey, if, if the current king, Saul, finds out I'm about to go anoint the future king, I'm going to get killed. This isn't going to be good. God says, go, and you're going to go worship. You're going to go sacrifice to me, and you're going to run into Jesse, and you're going to invite him, and then I'm going to show you after that. You're going to invite him to this sacrifice. That's exactly what's happening. They get him, they get his kids, and they're saying, you guys, you and your boys are coming with me. Well, when they came, he looked on Eliab, which is one of Jesse's sons, looked on Eliab and thought, oh, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. So you see what's happening. You're tracking with this, right? 
Samuel goes, he, he sees the first kid. I mean, that guy's a stud. It's got to be him. God says, nope, not him. Nope, not this one, not that one. They look the part. Surely it's this one. Go through all seven sons. What, who's left? Well, I mean, there's, there's David, but like David's, it's not David, right? David's out with the sheep. David is, and so they've got kind of a son that they've kind of stashed away, didn't even invite to the sacrifice whenever they were told to bring all the sons. Go get them. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Here's what we see. This passage, right? Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6 of 1 Samuel is a turning point in the history of Israel and really a turning point in the story of God. It's the anointing of King David. It's when, it's when God, in his infinite sovereignty, looks through the crowd, sees the kid not even in the room, and says, that, that is the one that I'm choosing, right? And, and this changes the history of how God plays out in Israel and, and really the rest of what we're going to study for this semester and most of into next semester is what happens now between the anointing of David as king and a ton of stuff that happens before he even sits on the throne and then a ton of stuff that happens after he is reigning on the throne. Um, and so, so that's what we see here. And we see that David doesn't he meet expectations, right? He's sloppy. This idea, this word ruddy was really more of a reference to the fact that he was, you know, his skin was, was kind of dark from the sun that he was probably the guy they just left out in the field so he's kind of the the rugged guy which in this context right in this context tanning right a self-tanning business would have not been profitable in in ancient Israel ladies sorry um right it wouldn't have been the thing because actually it was cooler in this culture the paler you look the better it is which for some of you guys you're like oh sweet but um that's neither here nor there <clears throat> right because that was like royalty right? Like that's royalty. You stay in the palace, you, you know, but if you like have a lot of sun, if you're, if you're tan, that means you're poor and you're in the field and you're not, and this was him, man. He was just the guy out in the field. He's not an ugly dude, but he certainly didn't match expectations, right? Jesse's not even proud of him, right? He doesn't even invite him in. When he says, bring your sons, he conveniently forgets this one. Um, this though, this is who God chooses. This is who God chooses to be his king as he, as he takes his blessing and anointing off of Saul and puts it on to David. And it is a turning point in the rest of where we're going uh, for the rest of the semester. Here's what I want to do. What does this mean for us, right? Because the reality is we see behind the curtain here of, of how to answer that question of what makes us enough. And, and really what we see is we see God deny a metric. We say, it's not this. And then what we're also going to see is we're going to see something that echoes throughout the rest of Scripture, pointing to how we answer the question, when will I be enough? How will I be enough? How will I be chosen to say, yes, that's my boy, that's my girl? And, and let's, let's see what it is. First, let's look at what it isn't. And it's very explicit in this passage. Very explicit in the passage. The, the metric that God looks through for who he chooses to be his. Ready? To be God's, it's not about looking the part. Right? It's not about looking the part. We see verse 7 right there in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. I mean, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance 
or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. We're seeing a part of the character, a timeless reality of the character of the lens that God sees us with. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Here's why that verse and these 13 13 verses of chapter 16 run into a brick wall of 2023. Because you guys and me, we live in a world and a culture more than ever in history that is put so much pressure on how we look on how we look and the world and what we look like to the world. I mean, even just with the invention of social media is inherent with the idea of I'm going to project a very specific image. And it's all going to be narrated by the matrix of and the metric of am I liked? Is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it followable? All of those things. And so we live in a culture that is constantly driving and pushing the answer to the question of am I enough? Will I be accepted? driven by answering the question, do you look the part? Do you fit in? Will you be accepted? Will you be worthy? Our culture is constantly trying to get you to answer that question as well, do you look the part? Just fake it until you make it. What is the world supposed to look like? What is success? And that manifests itself in all kinds of different areas, right? And even in your own life, you're gonna answer that question differently depending on different places and people you're with. When you're with your parents, right? We got some parents in the room. When you're with parents, there's going to be maybe even just subconsciously, man, am I, am I what they're looking for, right? Am I, am I living up to that kind of standard? Or potentially, you have in your life asked that question, consciously or subconsciously, am I, am, I, am I living in a way that my parents see my life and see how I'm living, and they say, yes, I'm so proud, and so often, Some of us, man, we don't feel like we get the answer we need, and so actually our life is like, forget that. I'm not asking that question anymore. I'm gonna rebel, and I'm gonna run from that. I'm gonna do the opposite because I'm so exhausted of trying. But regardless, that's a dynamic with our parents, with our peers. It's a whole nother one. Man, if you're in college, in this room, even if you're in the ages of 18 to 25, I mean, there's such an immense pressure to fit in, to belong somewhere. Right, specifically college students. I mean, we've, we've got whole, whole days, whole weekends designed about, you know, can you get recruited to be in the right place and do you look enough like this and do you fit the appearance of what you're supposed to be to fit here or to fit there or to be in this club or to be in this organization or to be in this fraternity or sorority. I mean, the, the social pressure that we all have is enormous and everything in our world tells us the answer to the question of are you enough, are you going to get accepted, is driven by an unlimited number of external things. Unlimited number of external things. And that drives us to control that we aren't actually designed to control. It drives us to anxiety that we can't shake. It drives us to exhaustion that we can't seem to get out of. It drives us to all of these places of discouragement, and if, and if it hasn't yet, if we keep running that race, we will eventually run into those walls of, of anxiety or exhaustion or just feeling so out of control. And from that become all these behaviors. I'll fix it, I'll, I'll answer the question, I'll tweak that, I'll, I'll get control, I'll get peace in, in these different behaviors. Let me give you just a few. 
um, that we could go all day. I'm just going to give you a few that um, I've seen, that, that many of these I've struggled with, still struggle with many of these, but, but ways that our behavior pops up of trying to answer this question. And here's one of them that's um, so prevalent is eating disorders, right? I mean, and, and eating disorders is not, is not just women. Uh, we know that. Um, but eating disorders have become so common. I mean, if that's you, if, if that's something that you have or do struggle with, I want you to hear me say you are not alone. You are not alone in that. So often, even, e- even that struggle can become so isolating if you don't want people to know, or it can be comparison-based. Be like, well, I'm not as bad as that person, and so it's not this bad. But it becomes a pattern, a behavior in our life to get control. Listen, that... I, I get that. That's so hard. It's so hard to get freedom from that. You don't have to be stuck in that. But ultimately, that's a symptom of a root brokenness. You don't have to be stuck there. Right? We've got even resources here just to go on that rabbit trail because I know that's such a, a sensitive thing and we care about you and we don't want you to stay stuck. We have, a, we have a shepherding director here in this ministry, Amy, who who really is connected to so many resources and family night leaders and, and counselors and, and groups that we would love. If you feel isolated and stuck, you're not designed to just, well, I just gotta get, I just gotta grow out of it. I just gotta get better. Don't stay in that place. If there is freedom and life to say, okay, there's a different way to live, reach out to us. Let us know. We'd love to walk. We'll keep it discreet. Find Amy. DM us, and we'll just connect you straight to Amy. You don't have to say why it is and let Amy connect you to a next step. Um, Also, I mean, drugs and alcohol are are an obvious one, right? You're surrounded by those things, coping mechanisms to, to numb the feeling of maybe I'm not enough or to belong. If I do these things in these social settings, then I am more accepted. I'm more chosen in those rooms. Sex, pornography, all of those become these mechanisms in which I say I can belong, I can feel like I'm worthy, and it all is our soul crying out, am I enough? Can I be chosen? Can I be loved? Can I fulfill this thing that I'm not exactly sure to? And these things provide me immediate gratification. They're they're things that God has designed. God created alcohol, right? God created sex. God created those things, and we take them and say, I can fill this void with them. And it's not just just the things that you hear in a sermon that are supposed to be like, the oh, yeah, those those are on like the no list. Man, it's things like, it's things like church attendance, Right? Religion. Religion. Legalistic religion and, and checking the box of, man, am I showing up to church every day? That's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. It's a good thing. But when it becomes the main thing, it becomes inadequate. Right? When religion becomes the thing, I'm going to be moral and really keep the religious checklist. And I'm going to master that thing. When that becomes the way that you say, and this will make me accepted you will be exhausted because that's not God's plan either. By just being religious enough and moral enough and checking all of those boxes, that doesn't do it either. Achievement and success, those are good things. But when those things become what validates us, what gives us our identity, they become fragile. And when they go away, everything crumbles. When we don't get the success or the achievement or the favor of the professor or the internship that we wanted, the relationship that we wanted, the good relationship, the last thing, even this, community, right? Christian community. 
man, Broken Bow was last week, and I just hear so many stories about people that just got to experience a kind of community that was just awesome and encouraging, and that is good. You are designed for it. You are designed for that. But when Christian community becomes your God, it's a, it's a great thing, but it's a horrible God. And from my vantage point of being a 40-year-old pastor who's watched young adults get just incredible growth in college, in community, but then all of a sudden you graduate and -and so-and-so moves and this girl gets married and all of a sudden that community changes and shifts and you realize, wait, my faith was in my Christian community, not in a relationship with a father, a heavenly father who saw me out of eternity and said, that's my girl, that's my guy. It was built on a community, and when I took that community away, or when I took that moral list, and and I slipped up on that, or I took this coping mechanism away, everything crumbled because it wasn't actually meant to answer the question, what makes us worthy, what makes us enough? So what does? All of those things fail, what does? How can we know for sure that we are his? To understand, to truly believe, and to walk in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we answer that question. How do we know if we're enough? The gospel of Jesus Christ, a a full understanding, a deep understanding of what the gospel is, a, a true saving faith in the gospel, and then living it out in my life, that is what answers the question in an eternal way, starting today all the way through eternity. That's it. Let me talk about the gospel for a second. The gospel is the good news. That's good news because the starting place is that we're broken. The starting place is that we're broken sinners who are unworthy, myself included. We, we don't measure up. And if you think this sermon is gonna turn into, well, hey, the reality is God just loves you. You're broken, but God's just really benevolent and he's just really, and you know what? He sees you and he doesn't think your sin's a big deal. That's not where this is going. I wish it was. I wish we could say, hey, you know what the the solution is? The solution is positive thinking. Believe in a very positive God and that would be it, except that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, no, you aren't worthy, but I love you anyway. I love you, but you are not worthy, but your sin is not okay. Your brokenness is not what I, your incompleteness is not how I've designed you to be. And so 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter showed up and it was God in the flesh. And he lived the life that we were called to live. And God incarnate in flesh lived a holy life and then he hung on a cross and all of the penalty and death an incomplete brokenness that I struggle with and continue and will continue to struggle with was placed on him on that cross and he paid the penalty for what I deserved. And then he rose again. And in rising again 2,000 years ago, that son of God sealed his authority over, over all things and sealed his authority over his ability to say those who put their saving faith in me, I say, that's my boy, that's my girl and I adopt them, and nothing can change that, and nothing can take that away, and nothing can pull them out of my hand after I've done that. That's the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel is, and it's what it does. And if you, if you hear that, and you say, yeah, heard it. Heard it a thousand times. Get it. Jesus loves us. Believe in Jesus. 
and, and you've heard that and you've checked that box or you've tried to or you prayed a prayer one time or week after week, you keep trying to pray a prayer to make sure it sticks. My hope and my challenge is I, I, I've been in ministry for a long time and the source of my growth is just continuing to look at the gospel through different angles, like, like a diamond that you would hold up that's multifaceted and continue to stare at the depth and beauty of what God did 2,000 years ago and how it affects everything in my life and how it allows me to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I can't earn it. I can't get cleaned up. My sin is an issue. I can't just say, oh, it's no big deal. God's really nice. It is a big deal. And it's very costly. And that cost was paid for. That is what we believe in the gospel. That's what we believe Jesus has done. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that powerful grace that's available to us? Why has maybe that truth, that theological truth, not changed our lives? Here's three things I want you to to think about. Three things I want you to think about in this idea of what do we do with this gospel. And the first is, I want you to ask yourself, man, have I received it? Have I really received it? I think, man, I grew up in, in the church. I grew up in the church world, man. I went to the vacation Bible school and all those things. That was my story. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you grew up in a, in a Catholic church or a Methodist or a different denomination. Maybe not at all, right? Maybe not at all. But the reality is it's not just a prayer I pray. It's not just a theological acknowledgement. It's a real surrender. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 16. We'll put it up on the screen. Um, to follow him is not, yeah, just say a prayer, nod your head. Look what he says in verse 24 of Matthew 16. He says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It seems like Jesus is saying to follow him is more than just positive thinking. To follow him is more than just a, a, a prayer I need to repeat or a ritual I need to do or a list I need to follow. It seems like he's saying meant to follow me is a life of surrender. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. I mean, that gets manifested in the life of Paul, the apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, one of the legends of our faith, God used him to build the New Testament church. He articulates exactly what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 16 when he shares his gospel, in a, he shares his testimony in one sentence, his story of faith, what it looks like in one sentence in Galatians 2.20. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ. This idea of he's picked up his cross and has followed him, he says, hey, I'm dead with Christ. I'm dead with, I've been crucified with Christ. Spiritually, metaphorically, he didn't actually hang on a cross. He's saying that cross, I've denied myself crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. That kind of surrender. And then he says, the life I now live in the flesh, walking around, doing life, the life I now live in the flesh, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And to receive the gospel of grace that's available to everyone, no matter what you struggle with, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how bad you are at keeping the religious list or how, how stuck you are in the things that you know you shouldn't be stuck in, the grace of God is more powerful than all of that. And it's available to everyone through faith. And faith is not a head nod. Faith is a, I need you. 
I need you. You are my savior, Jesus. My hope is in you. And then it looks like that every day. And, and then we drift from it and then we go, and, and that saving faith says now you're mine, you're adopted. And something happens where the spirit of God then fills us and seals us and everything has changed. Have you received it? Have you really received it? If you haven't, if you're sitting here today and you say, man, I've done church, I've done the Christian thing, I've done plenty of the worldly thing, but I've never really surrendered my life to Christ. October 15th, 2023, it was not an accident that you were here today. If that's your story, if you're sitting there and you feel like, I, God wanted me to hear this, I don't, you don't need to remember us, you don't remember this room, but know that the Spirit of God said, I've got my boy, I've got my girl in this room for a reason, because I love them. And they're trying all these things to answer this question, am I enough? And I'm their heavenly father saying, yes, because I say you are. Surrender to me and let me live inside you and change your life and your eternity. Talk to us afterwards, man. Or reach out to us or text us or DM us. We'll take you to coffee. It's not an easy switch to flip. It's a step of faith and it's beautiful. And it leads to a life that's worth it. Have you received it? And if you have received it, my, my next question is, do you live it, right? Do you live it out? And that's something I struggle with, right? I've received the gospel of grace in my life. I've received it, I'm confident I have assurance of that salvation, but my life is still very imperfect, guys. I still struggle, I still drift, I still doubt and have doubts, and yet God doesn't take away his adoption. Even doubting rebellious, he still says, yeah, that's my son, Ben, and he's stumbling his way through it, but I love him, and I'm gonna as his spirit, his spirit in him, walk him out through this. Look at, look at what we see here um, in Romans. Uh, Paul, in chapter seven, says this. This is Paul. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, which I can relate to at times. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. Stay with me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here's what he's saying. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Then if you are in Christ but you still find patterns in your life where I think why do I keep going back to this? I've been adopted out of the orphanage by a gracious God through Christ and Christ alone. I've been adopted into the heavenly father's family that's good and, and, and a home that I'm designed for and yet I keep sneaking out at night and going back to the orphanage and playing in the mud and getting stuck in all of the gross things that don't last. So often that's our story even as believers. We drift back to the things that why do I keep doing this? And there is at times this immediate gratification. It's, it's fun and it can numb those things and it can, it can be a, a shortcut in ways, but then I know where it leads me. It leads me stuck back in an orphanage where I've been adopted, it's sealed, it's done. But I live that out. 
And the very next chapter, Paul shows us what propels us to live that out in Romans 8. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not listen You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and by daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Hey, if you've received it, you have the spirit of God inside you. And right now, you might be trying really, really hard to make that voice as quiet as possible, to numb it and callous it and not listen to it. But if you have received the gospel of Christ in faith, you have a spirit of God saying, you are a son, you are a daughter. I've called you for more than this. I love you, you are beloved. Listen to the spirit of God. Listen to his kindness. Even when we're stuck in our sin, He doesn't meet us with arms folded disappointment. He meets us as a father who runs into our sin and says, daughter, son, I have something better for you. Come walk in freedom. I know there's immediate gratification, but there is fruit here that is love and joy and peace and all of these things that that will never, you will never answer the questions with those. Would we submit to that spirit? Would we stop trying to squelch it? We stop trying to make it callous and be people who spend time in word and community. Not that we're checking boxes with our Bible study and our, our community, but that we're putting ourselves in places that are cultivating the spirit of God that lives inside you. And lastly is this. If we've received it, and if we're living it and trying our best to live it, then are we sharing it? Because we're called to share it. Second Corinthians 5, and I'll, I'll end on this, says this. Starts with verse, I'm going to start in 17 where it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if we're in Christ, the power of God's grace makes us new. Amazing. And then he says this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Hey, if you've received the gospel in faith, right? Not because you earned it, not because you looked the part, but because God saw that you were around the corner, hidden in a field somewhere, that you were ashamed to be there. God said, nope, that's the one I choose. I don't look at the outward appearance. I don't look at, this is the one I choose. That is available to everyone. If you've received that, then we walk in it, and that's a daily struggle, but we walk in it, and we take baby steps, but then we're called to share it. You are called to share that with others. Inherent within the idea of your adoption is also this idea of a ministry to share with other people around you. Hey, this father is good. Hey, this heavenly father, you don't get there by just cleaning yourself up and acting moral enough. You get there by surrendering to his grace. Yeah, it's costly. It's gonna cost you your life. You're gonna have to say, okay, your life over mine. God, would I live for you? But then you're sealed. Then the ups and downs are ups and downs in a relationship not a striving. You're called to share that. 
And if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, you live in a mission field that needs to hear that gospel. You don't have to have the right answers. You don't have to be smooth. You don't have to be cool. You don't have to have theological training. You just have to have a life connected to a father that has shown you grace. And then you get to turn around and show it to others. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for how you love us, Lord. Thank you, God, that your kindness is what leads us to repentance. Thank you for the gospel, that we don't earn it, that the answer to the question of are we enough and can we be enough is that you and your graciousness have said, yes, believe in my son, and we are yours. So God, would you do what only you can do right now? Would you help us believe in deeper and deeper ways? That we would be people who live our lives laid down for you. That we would see you as a king worthy of our life. That what we get is a relationship with a father that we were always designed to in eternity be connected to, a creator that we've always in our soul longed for. And we get that. So Lord, then show us what it looks like to live a life laid down, the joy and the freedom and the purpose that comes from it. God, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.